if I ever had a commercial, the commercial will actually stand as this. This is going to be a multi-part series. Now, granted, we are in the Gospel of John, and we are coming to that verse, of which has been a stumbling block for others, and yet for others it has given them an opportunity to extol the mysteries of Christ to his people. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is a telltale sign, especially to the world, that the God-man has come. And what better way to announce it than having the Spirit move the evangelists do claim it as so. So with that being said then, I will actually title this The Gospel of John, The Hypostatic Union. In our scripture text, if you have your Bibles, you can open to John 1, verse 14. And I'll leave it as its own standalone. And it reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Shall we now to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we give thanks for this Sabbath day, for many are still seeking for the Messiah, and yet you have revealed him by your will. We thank you, Father, that you have opened our eyes, ears, and hearts to see hear and believe by your spirit that we now as a church know the identity of the Messiah. Therefore be with your servant as he feed and teach your sheep and to them may they come with a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. It is in Christ was holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Therefore, as we continue and we come to the next portion of the chapter and John 1. This is the portion of the chapter where the apostle makes known that God, the Son, has come in the form of man. Believe it or not, the conversations of this epic event even dates back to the early council of Ephesus in AD 41. I mean, sorry, apologize, AD 31. But albeit, though, the apostle to write this adage in his gospel is by good and necessary deduction rise to correct the errors circulated by the wicked blasphemies of Ibian and Serinthius. So the aspect that this adage that comes, even though we've seen through the synods and chronicles of time have been highly debated, recall the apostles writing under the inspiration of the spirit to make this known so that future generations of the church will know that God is caring for his people. And of this, and as it, I have titled it the hypostatic union, I will now develop it into parts. Why, you may be thinking. One, it's going to take more than 45 minutes <laughs> to convey the work and study 
to make this precept and or doctrine habitable. What point of me to stand up here and provide you all these pieces in theology and study and work if you're not able to understand this? I should be able to make this something for you to be able to digest so that way when you have common speak, especially with those who are affront to see that the God, the Son, has come in the form of man, you're able to have a conversation that's intellectual. You should be able to articulate your position. And to be able to articulate it, that means you must be able to precisely defend your faith. Number two, I did not want to come slack because this will actually serve root to the remaining chapters, especially as you will see the Messiah have his dealings with the people. No, we read it. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Given in the aspect of mankind, and remember that because of the greatest act of disobedience that occurred in the garden, no longer is their worldview, their aspect of the world seen with the aspect of wanting to do righteousness. And we, we discussed it in the earlier portion of the chapter. So nonetheless, we should now come with a view in the aspect of the Messiah and his whole embodiment. For note here, me being able to show this and be able to exclaim and make this doctrine palpable, I tell you now, I lean on 1 Timothy uh, 4.16, which states, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Preserve or persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. You know, granted, this doctrine is no small feat, but it should be handled with diligence, should come with precision. Second uh, Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And then lastly, to those who are listening via the telecast, your faith in him should also be strengthened. For as you come to the knowledge of our Lord, I myself am a firm believer that the men who are charged to speak from this pulpit, from the past, currently in the present, and those in the future who orates, they should be able to convey the truth of God. And especially as we've seen historical progression of the church, especially in particular the foreign faith, I am one, only a vessel. But I want you to know it is the spirit of which provides the increase. For by 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, Paul states, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. By verse 7, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but is God who causes the growth. And note, the verses do not come by piecemeal without intent. For if you consider what I am saying, 
and thinking upon why these verses were made, you can in full assurance see how the Messiah had the dealings with the people as we come to the later chapters. So with that being said, and mind you, I did say this would be in parts today through part one. I want to provide proofs of sorts, proofs to show that the two natures in Christ, the mediator, is substantiated in Scripture. This is not something that came of myself. I did not conceive or contrive anything that was outside the word of God, but is to give you confidence and to show full and well, clearly the precepts show of those natures being in unity and harmony and the person which is Christ the mediator. So, by this emphasis, our introduction in this particular sermon is going to be seen in the context of the Reformed faith. If you were to go and try to seek additional information of the hypostatic union, I can definitely assure you that many men have made their attempt. Some, you always wondered how they got to that point that they got to. <laughs> Others, you wondered, I do not think you explained it enough. So, by this, I want to make it pretty easy and pretty clear. What do we understand it in forms of the Reformed faith? The divine nature was conjoined and united with the human nature. And thus the Son of God became the Son of Man. Of which the entire properties of each nature remain entire. Fully God. Fully man. Within all this, the two natures constitute the one Christ, the mediator. Now, we as humans always need aid. Whether it's visual, whether it's by analogy, whether it's by illustration. This is still a high mystery, but by analogy, it can be found. If we look at the way we see man. Man, in the dichromatic sense of the term, consists of two substances, body and soul. But note, neither is mixed with the other. For neither is the soul the body, nor the body the soul. Calvin, in writing the Institutes, devoted an entire chapter to the aspects of the hypostatic union. And I will read this precept as it is written. He who was the son of God became the son of man, not by conf confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For we maintain that the divinity was so conjoined and united with the humanity that the entire properties of each nature remain entire. And yet, the two natures constituted only one Christ. Calvin will continue here. If in human affairs anything is analogous to this great mystery, 
quote, or insert, it can be found. For through the most opposite simplitude, it seems to be that of man, who obviously consists of two substances, neither of which, however, is so intermingled with the other as that both do not retain their own properties. He continues here again. For neither is the soul body, nor the body soul. Wherefore, that is said separately of the soul, which cannot in any way apply to the body, in that, on the other hand, of the body, which is altogether inapplicable to the soul. And that, again, of the whole man, which cannot be affirmed without absurdity, I'm sorry, absurdity, either of the body or of the soul separately. So he's making a point of emphasis here. I liken to how you cannot disseminate that a man is without body and soul. You cannot disseminate that Christ cannot be with the, without the fully divine nature and being fully man. Now we read by our scripture text, the word became flesh. Please, and I'm going to make this as capital as possible. In this quote, I state, do not mistake that God the Son was changed into the flesh or intermingled in, with the flesh. Now, let's take that aspect in terms of the verbs as I have posited them in these two forms. If you're familiar with the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, it has a definition in concurrence with the word change, in which it holds three uses in its use of propositions. But of the two, which is from the verb tense, there is the intrusive and there is the transitive sense. So, in context here, what I'm stating to you, that some people believe that the Son of God was changed into the flesh, and or from the change into the flesh, by definition, it would mean to cause to turn or pass into one state or another, to continue, to alter, to make different, to vary an external form or essence, as to, to change the color or shape of that one thing, or to change the consonants of that one thing, or to change the heart or life. From the intrusive sense, there are also, another again, two uses. And the aspect of it, from the intuitive standpoint, is to be altered, to undergo variation. As an example here, men sometimes change for the better or for the worse. So, why is it that the word, quote, the God, the Son, as I'm not going to dabble too much, but we know, given our dealings in the first person, uh, prior portion of the chapter in John, that the Son of God could not have been changed into the flesh. It is in here that we should know God in all aspect of his being is one and the same. Malachi 3, 6. In the literal term, which will be used here, Lord, it is referring to the Father in this right, it states, and I quote, For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Now, in the context of our sermon, in the essence of God the Son, we have first seen, if you're familiar with the Psalms, in Psalm 102, 25 to 27, in which it speaks of the state of God the Son in his essence, but with harmony from the old to the new, you can look at Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, which reads, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment. And like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. You see here, the aspects of the word change cannot be as possible and derived with the essence of God himself. And note why that has to be important. You consider some of the decisions you make on a daily basis. But at one point when you have, quote unquote, changed your mind, aspects of life have approached you that causes you to make that decision and or change. But if that were to be the case and God were to change, well, what will be the next decision in the aspect of how he makes his, his decrees if he were to change? What would seem to be stagnant? You will come to no understanding. There's no faith. There's no, no cognitive assurance that one day you may think the concept he loves you and tomorrow he might hate you, but you're not seeing the bridge between the two. But if he stands stagnant, if he stays in the aspect of his essence and being, of which, of which, he can swear on no one but himself, you should then have full assurance in your own faith that everything he says shall come to its order. Now, I also brought to you the aspect that God the Son in coming um, in this quote-unquote uh, body to walk in this earth. I told you that it wasn't intermingled with the fresh, flesh. And the aspect of the intermingling, I want to again define that so that you will not come to that particular error. By which the verb also has an intransitive and transitive sense. For the transitive sense to intermingle, it means to mix or mingle together to bring some things with others. And in the transitive intransitive sense, it means to be mixed or to be incorporated in. So again, I will bring to you the same style as I did with the before with change. I will do with the intermingle. In which we see God the Son make his appearance to mankind. We can't deny he took different forms of which through the dispensation of time, 
though through his own wise counsel it thought to be appropriate, he fashioned himself to be in creation. But that does not necessitate that, quote, like I said, he intermingled or mixed together in the form of the change of what he took in that form to present himself. Seems like a lot. It is not. Let me convey by using scripture to provide it in this context. When God the Son came in through the Old Testament, he took various forms. This is seen as a theophany or theophany. The definition of a theophany is the visible manifestation to humankind of God. The one I choose to show in particular how he came into communication through a non-human form as though he makes his appearance is through Exodus 3, 2 through 4. It reads, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. Yet the bush was not yet, it was not being consumed. By verse 3, Moses states, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burning up. By verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said, do not come, ne do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place of, on which you from the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So you see, likewise, in the form that the God-man has come to communicate with his mankind, he did not, quote-unquote, convert into the bush. He did not, quote-unquote, change the bush's composition. But he took to a manifestation of which he one appeared, again, as the angel of the Lord, but then in which he and his divine counsel upon taking his manifestation, burn the bush with fire. If that is to be so encased in how I have proclaimed it, especially giving you these two particular scripture references, as we continue to move forward, especially with verse number 14 in John 1, this theophany now captured in our context is that God, the Son, will now come in his manifestation in the form of man. Now, we come to this portion of particularly which the context of this part is premised under. It is the passages from Scripture to provide the proof of the distinguishment between the two natures. As so, I think it best serves to start with the Old Testament. And believe it or not, given the aspects of time as well, I will move through the Old Testament as a show, especially since we're going to come to a lot of the aspects within the self 
Testament that Jesus Christ makes through John in regards to his deity. But the Old Testament saints were promised the Messiah. But at the aspects through the dispensation of time of which the Chronicles and the Scripture was continued to be written, what did they believe? What did they know? This allows us to segue properly because now in looking at the Old Testament, let's consider the attributes of the qualities attributed to him, which refer to his divinity and that those same attributes or in the term of the word attributes will qualify to him in particular of his humanity. So in point, simply put, Let's see if we can distinguish the period of his eternal existence and from his manifestation. Therefore, on the grounds, first, of his external eternal existence, i.e. his de de deity, i.e. his divinity, they are numerous. But we can start really from the beginning. Genesis 1 and in 1 through 2. I be it on Genesis 2. Two, we notice that as the world was being formed and it was desolate and empty and darkness ruled over it, the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And I won't elaborate too much more into it, only because you've seen already when we went through the first three verses in the gospel, we did make the argument to show that he was in the beginning. But... The important piece of it was that even before the world came into existence, God was living. Now, through the progression of the Old Testament, the Theophanies are evident of his workings, and in particular, the appearances of him in the non-human form. And albeit, at a point in time, according to his divine will, it still illustrates the eternity of God the Son. I give you this example. Genesis 31, 11 through 13, we see in the adage, the angel of the Lord and the angel of God. But note, through the aspects, and we already read through Exodus 3, in Genesis 31, the angel of the Lord makes the proclamations to show his identity with the Godhead. By Genesis 31, 11 through 13, then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. The angel of the Lord continues here by verse 12. Now rise your, I'm sorry, now raise your eyes and see that all the male goats that are there that are mating are stripped speckled and mottled. For I have seen everything that Laban has been doing to you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a memorial stone, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. So it's very clear. It's pretty, pretty, I think, simplistic to show the proclamation of the identity that the angel here makes in particular with the Godhead. If you recalled when we were going through John in the particular 
earlier uh, verses in the chapter. And I'll bring your attention to the latter clause in verse number one. The word was with God and the word was God. I presented you Psalm 2-7 to establish the distinct personality that God the Son had evident from the Father and the Holy Spirit. I continue now to add on to the basis of which Psalms 45, 6, and 7, Psalms 110-1 continue to now show you and furnishes proof proper that the saints of the old administration again show that they understood the illustrations that came with the internality of God the Son. For David writes in Psalms 45, 6, and 7, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and have hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Psalms 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Likewise, to which on the Old Testament, let's consider the theophany of which the body was supposed to be prepared. For now, we're now looking into the aspect of how the pre-incarnation was spoken of and what the incarnation was meant to be. I bring to you from the earliest, Genesis 3, 15. We consider this to be called the Proto-Evangelium. And I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Let's continue as the aspects of the Old Testament continue to show the coming of the Messiah in regard to his incarnation, <laughs> to his manifestation. By verse, I'm sorry, by Genesis 2, 22, 15 through 18, Moses writes, under the consideration of this, in regards to Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac, by verse 15, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham a second time from heaven. And by verse 16 said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and, and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the star of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And again, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. By verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. By the five books of Moses, it was pretty clear as Israel was to continue to walk in the wilderness, they were given the promise of the true Messiah in which he was to come, in particular in that theophany of that bodily form. Now note, as the major prophets now continues to move forward, do though their admonishment of Israel, they continue to speak that message, that good news that the coming Messiah was to come in that 
bodily form. Isaiah starts in chapter 9, verse 16. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Daniel, it speaks of a kingdom not like any others ever seen. And his trench tied to the times aspect of it shows by which he considered it eternal. For example, by verse 13, Daniel states, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So the aspects can't be lost. The Old Testament saints had the promise of the Messiah come. And through all the theophanies that the Lord showed in his communication with the people in that non-human form, the promise was still made that he should come in the like of that particular body. And of this, I saved this one to the very end. When David writes in Psalms 46 through 7, he still makes an understanding of that theophany of which the coming Messiah was to come. But you could see and note he doesn't take it to the literal context. Why do I say that? What David writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, nonetheless, he states in Psalms 46 through 7, You have not desired sacrifice in meal offering. You have opened my ears. You have not required burnt offering in sin offering. Then I said, and by verse 7, Behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. When the wolves of the world, i.e. the humanists, read, that, oh, you claim that David speaks of the Messiah coming, especially in a body prepared for him. I do not see how David wrote of this in Psalms. And the reason why they note this is because when they go to read and they try to attack the faith, they use Hebrews 10.5 to show the contradiction because we, under the faith, see the continuity and harmony between the two. Hebrews 10.5 states, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Again, you have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You know what all this shows? It shows exactly what the master was speaking of when even I brought to you Matthew 13.13. 13. While they claim to be seeing, they do not see. For, if you were familiar with David's note here in the psalm, he is likening it to the year of Jubilee in Israel, of which we read in context, Exodus 21 by verses 5 and 6, it notes what transpired. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife 
and her children shall belong to her master and he shall leave alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not leave as a free man. By verse 6, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the door post and his master shall pierce his ear with a owl and he shall serve him permanently. You see here, as a like to the servant who fully committed his servitude to his master by piercing his ear, David saw the expression in full because of the consequence of the previous statement. By verse 6, you have not desired sacrifice or meal offering. So what does the writer of Hebrew do in properly providing the proper context? To the Messiah's coming, the Messiah will make the sacrifice sufficient and efficacious. And what sacrifice could be more sufficient and efficacious than being expressed by a permanent servitude to which his sacrifice will come of a body prepared for it. And of which, believe it or not, I yield my time now in regards to this context to read to you Isaiah 53. Because of the servant being spoken of of the old, this is the promise that they were given. Note how the prophet makes this proclamation. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. Verse 3. He was despised and abandoned by men. A man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. Verse 4. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore. And our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assume that he had been afflicted. Verse 4 continues. He was struck down by God and humiliated. By verse 5, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 5 verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. 
each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of all of us to fall on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he so too he did not open his mouth. By verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men, and yet he was rich. And yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, but the Lord desired to crush him, to cause him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. By verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. And it concludes and ends in verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. This, brothers and sisters, I can tell you now, was the promises the Old Testament saints had to the coming of the Messiah. And the men who spoke to God through all the theophanies that were showed in the Old Testament understood very clearly of what was to come. And of which David exclaims in his Psalms to show the for it to be necessary for him to come in that particular fashion, which is in the aspect of his incarnation, being that he came as a man, we are going to see full and well the importance, especially, especially given what all scripture has tried to convey. God is going to bridge the gap between him and his people. And through all the preparations that he made in order for that to come, he has must, he must and did 
make it right by making a sacrifice and that sacrifice being properly seen properly attained and properly atoned by his son when i return we're now going to look in the aspects of the communication between the two properties and show just that very aspect of the union between the two for which it would serve well that when we now take into consideration how the god the son came and became man we definitely want to not lose sight that there is evidence to show how the God man came and was able to perform that work. Shall we now let to the Lord our God in prayer? <clears throat> 